channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we're going to do Entrepreneur Heaven. We're going to profile another four entrepreneurs. Ah, looking forward to it. I love this segment. We're really making our way through these folks. <laughs> yeah. So who do we have uh who do we have for today? Well, we have up George Eastman, of course from Eastman Kodak, right? James Cash Penny, the Wright brothers and Anita Roddick, so for, of uh body shop fame. So let's oh, get started right. with with some George Eastman. I this is a fascinating guy, isn't he, Ron? He, he he absolutely is, and boy, did he really change the world. <laughs> Even though he didn't really set out to do that. <laughs> no. But you could definitely tell why he was one of Steve Jobs' uh, heroes because he was all about design too, and he was all about making it simple. You know, his goal, he said, he wanted ma- he wanted to make the camera as convenient as the pencil. <laughs> well, pretty close, pretty close. I mean, you know, ultimately, it really was. I mean, here's a guy born in uh, 1854. And I've got an essay that he wrote, Ed, in 1920, and the title of the essay is Make the Camera as Convenient as the Pencil. <laughs> and, he, and he lays out his philosophy. But what I, what I thought was really interesting um, was, well, he, he, he really liked the letter K. He thought that it was very impressive. It was strong, incisive, and all that. And he wanted a, he wanted a trademark with uh, starting with the letter K and ending with the letter K. And of course, that's how he came up with Kodak after huh. playing around with a bunch of different uh, combinations. But the first Kodak was actually marketed in July of 1888, 10 years after he started the business and you know ran through a bunch of different experiments on, on how to perfect this. And you basically bought this camera with a hundred exposures loaded into it that developed basically two and a half picture, two and a half inch pictures for, and it sold for $25. Okay. Which that's is, about, yeah, that's, go ahead. that's about $700 today, maybe even more in today's money. So not, not, not a cheap thing. Right. No, not at all. And it, it was interesting because the, the the whole idea behind the, the it, that really started him is roll film. I mean, cameras existed. I think that a lot of people think that yes. George Eastman invented the photograph. He did not. I mean, the photographs had been around for quite some time. But what what 
George Eastman put created really was the ability to use rolled rolled up film so that you could take one picture after the next without you know changing the plates and and doing all you know kinds of crazy stuff again simplification and design and of course his work also then led to the invention of the motion picture camera i guess by edison and others but it, it just the simple idea of saying okay how can we get this to have so that the film is you know rolled up and is reusable that was really the key right he it, apparently dry plate technology was what he kind of chalked this up to that was the big that was his big innovation uh, was using the dry plate but mm-hmm. once you bought this camera and you shot these hundred pictures, you sent them off to Kodak. They developed them for you, loaded your camera with a hundred uh, new, you know, new roll of film of a hundred pictures, sent mm-hmm. it back for ten dollars. Okay. So this this wasn't this wasn't <laughs> this wasn't a cheap little toy uh, <sighs> back in those days. That was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, his his uh, marketing slogan was "You press the button and we do the rest." <laughs> well, that that that's really what it got down to, now, wasn't it? <laughs> but and, and didn't he run afoul then of, of antitrust regulations then too? Because the whole you know, yeah, he wanted to sell the film and the development, and then that got into some sticky situations, right? Yes, he did. He did get uh, sued by, I believe, the government. It m- might have been brought by competitors, as most antitrust cases are. But I think the government brought this one against him because he he uh, he tried to you know tried to do both the developing and the processing, uh, and they wanted him to separate it. Um, but and he lost that case. And he said afterwards that he did not understand the antitrust laws and did not know anyone who did. (laughs) And and I have to say, as somebody who's who's tried to read the antitrust laws and some of the cases on them, and wow, we need to do a whole show on that, Ed. Uh, They're just you talk about uh, murkiness and just being unclear of what you can do uh, to stay, you know. on top of the law, the, the antitrust laws are just a maze. Right, but purposefully so, I think. I mean, they, they, it's so that they can be interpreted by by the governmental attorneys the way they, they they want to be interpreted to to make everybody look bad. I mean, it, it, I, I think that that's part of the the trouble with with the antitrust thing is is that just about loopholes in it almost by definition. Yeah, they, they are very murky. There's also obviously their state antitrust laws to boot. Uh, most of them are brought by competitors, but anyway, I'm just thinking we need to do a show on that because there, there I think there's a lot of misunderstanding with respect to the antitrust laws, and um, I have real strong opinions after studying it for so long. Oh well, yeah, no, and uh, what I what I was saying was that, that uh, the 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 whole idea is, is they're purposefully murky so that they can be twisted and bent in any way that the governmental attorney wants them to be. Right. Right. That's very true. And and the the conflicting rulings from different eras, it's just it's it's really confusing. It's almost to the point where, you know, if you if you if your prices stay the same, you're obviously colluding. If you drop your prices, you're obviously engaging in predatory pricing. And if you raise <laughs> prices, you're obviously part of a cartel. Right. So okay, <laughs> anything yeah. you do, it's almost you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. Yeah. No. You know. Well, that was the whole thing with the whole Microsoft thing, and them saying that it was antitrust to give away Internet Explorer for free. 
Well, because and consumers are being armed how with a free product. But anyway, back to George Eastman. He again did some pretty interesting stuff as a philanthropist. Like all of the guys that we've profiled, and I should say guys. I you know I'm from New York, so we use guys meaning guys and gals. Sure. But um, the, the the folks that we have profiled really have have been major philanthropists once they've amassed their fortunes, and I think that there's clearly a theme there as well. Yeah, there is. Even I was just, uh, I just heard an interview with uh, one of the Koch brothers and, you know, I, I, I lost track of the amount of millions of dollars he's given, not only in New York for like the museum and all of that, but for, uh, I think the Sloan Kettering Cancer uh, Foundation, you know, it seems like whatever disease these guys get afflicted with or their loved ones get afflicted with, they take on as a major cause. Mm-hmm. As well they should, Ron. They should be giving it all up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. As Carnegie said, who we profiled last time we did this uh, this segment, which was back in August, Ed, August 7th, we uh, profiled Andrew Carnegie. But he, he obviously gave away a, lo- lo- a ton of his money, and he was actually the one who said, a man who dies wealthy dies disgraced. Yeah. Yeah, but Eastman, uh, aside from the Eastman School of Music, which a lot of people have heard of, the the University of Rochester it was, and the Rochester Institute of Technology, as well as some buildings at MIT. So he was he was he played all over the place. Yeah, he sure did. And you know the other thing interesting about him, and again, I, I got some of my background information from again the scholar I've quoted him before. He wrote a great book called Giants of Enterprise. His name is Richard S. Tedlow. He is actually a business historian, and I just love his writing. Uh, and because he he just goes into such depth when he profiles someone, and he says, unlike other entrepreneurs who who all claim none of them say they're in it for the money he said eastman probably was one who really wasn't he and he wasn't out to change the world either he he didn't have that steve jobs you know put a dent in the universe uh Mm -hmm. attitude he he was just um completely obsessed with with photography and wanted to make this really simple for as simple as he could uh, but he did think, Ed, and I, th- I found this really interesting because apparently there wasn't a cruel bone in this in this guy's body, but he did have this attitude that business is war. Mm. Now, maybe because he was so you know honest and didn't have a cruel bone that he that he kind of looked at maybe some behavior of competition or whatever and thought, well, this is just a you know war of all against all. But I, I found that to be kind of interesting that he did he did constantly say that business was war. He likened it to war. Interesting metaphor. I mean, and I guess the the enlightened idea of you know cooperation or whatever uh, portmanteau you want to stick stick on that has has been something that's more recently evolved. I mean, and and I do think the whole idea of, of zero sum thinking. You know, we we we've talked about that a lot on this show, and and how it's still pervasive to this day. There's there's a lot of business people that I have interacted with who, when you when you talk to them about you know the double thank you moment. Or the the whole idea that that wealth um, is created in transactions, they they look at you kind of funny, you know. 
Right. No, absolutely. And and one other thing, Ed, that I found interesting, I've been reading Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics book uh, that we interviewed him on last year. The like and ninth edition? What are we up to now? Yeah, yeah fifth edition, <laughs> I think. He's also got a brand new one, so we're trying to get him back on the show. But uh, in 1976, 76, Kodak sold 90% of all film in the USA and 85% of all cameras. Now, the irony, Ed, is they invented the digital camera. What? Yeah, Kodak invented the digital camera, but that's actually what put them out of business. They filed for bankruptcy in January of 2012. They just couldn't get away from Kodachrome. They couldn't get away from their existing model. Wow. But they actually invented the digital camera. And, and didn't know what to do with it, or they yeah. they just just couldn't figure out, or they just said this is going to destroy our our film market. We can't put this I in think it was, place. Yeah, it was both. I think it was mm-hmm. both. They they worried about the cannibalization of their existing market, which of course, when you, you're selling ninety percent of all film, <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you would worry about that, right? This this comes back to uh, Andy Grove's line that if you're going to get cannibalized, better to dine with friends, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Or somebody yeah. else beat you, but uh, I I did find that interesting. It's just kind of ironic, you know. But we see how many times have we seen this in business? So, right that you can't you can't understand that 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 you you should run forward with your new technology. Well, well, th- th- great talk on thanks, Ron on on uh, e- George Eastman again, a fascinating guy. And we are about to take our first break, so we'll look forward to that. But we want to remind you that you can always get a hold of us at Ask TSOE at Verisage.com. And we want you to visit our website at thesoulofenterprise.com as well. And, and, but we do also uh, track Twitter, so ask, hashtag AskTSOE. And after the break, we're going to be at, inter- introducing you to another uh, entrepreneur, uh, James Cash Penny. So we look forward to that after this word from Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back talking about entrepreneur heaven. And, you know, one last thing about George Eastman, Ron, this is on a tragic note. He uh, he he had a, a very intense back problem that affected his spine in his last few years of his life, and ultimately ended up committing suicide rather than than dealing with the the pain. So I can only imagine uh, so, somebody as intense as him. But uh, he, he, his final note um, said to my friends, "My work is done. Why wait?" <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we need to do a show on famous last words. You know, I no, have, there you go. That's a good I, idea. I, I have a little fascinating book that's it's just got a bunch of you know famous people, writers, and various uh-huh. folks. Um, you know what purportedly was their last words. Now, of course, this is very hard to verify, but and some of them kind of like the expert speak show we did. Um, right. Some of them were just hysterical. I mean, I think it'd be really worth uh, going through them and talking about them because there's some interesting folks. All right, book it for next week, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we can think about it. Folks, if you have an opinion on that, let us know at uh, hashtag AskTSOE. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we got many tweets, at on the Expert Speak show, so that was, that was pretty popular. Yes, it was. So let's talk about James Cash Penny. I, I found this guy uh, to be very interesting for, for a host of reasons. I mean, I know the Penny stores have, have gone through you know, cyclical times and what they didn't, they hire a former Apple exec that was going to come oh, in yeah. and, and that, that didn't work out. And, and, uh, I, I haven't looked at the financial performance of Penny, but just th- looking at the founder, James Cash Penny himself, you know, it was really funny. He, his father was a primitive Baptist preacher. Mm. Uh, I don't you, know, I don't you, even know what a primitive Baptist is. Look it up. <laughs> It's, <laughs> <laughs> look it up, <laughs> well, folks. Look it up. It's it's a real sect. Um, uh-huh. But he, you know, he was born on a Missouri farm, and his, he had twelve children. His father and uh, James Cash's first venture was a butcher shop that ultimately failed. And one of the reasons was he he refused to supply meat to hotels that sold liquor. Okay. So this guy obviously didn't like tobacco, he didn't like liquor, he didn't like gambling, uh, none of this was allowed, and, it, and this carried over to his later days when, when he started the penny stores, but he actually bought into a dry goods store in, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Kemmerer, Kem, Kem, yeah, Kemmerer, yep, Wyoming, and uh, he bought in with two other partners, who he ended up buying out in 1907, I think, for about 30 grand, which is like three quarters of a million dollars in today's money, give or take. So it's a <laughs> significant sure, coin. Yeah, not not sure where he got that, but he then he started to uh, open other stores, and he called these the Golden Rules stores. Um, and by in 1913, he changed the name to J.C. Penny, and by 1917, he had 175 stores. Dang. You know, I have to admit, when I, we first started doing research on this, I was like, James Cash Penny. Really? Cash Penny? I'm like, well, I'm going to find out this, this guy made up his name, right? That's what I was fully expecting. But no, it was really his name. <laughs> his parents named him Cash. It's got to be a family name. I can't believe they would, you know, name him Cash. 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'm not sure where the origin of that came from. But Ed, I wanted to read you an ad because he, you know, he did something I think that was absolutely fascinating. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this guy uh-huh. was he was kind of like the McDonald's of his day in in a small way because his stores were actually part owned by the managers one third owned because he believed that if you really wanted somebody to work you know uh, really put sweat equity into it they had to have an ownership stake yeah and so he made his managers buy into a third of the store now they had to get promoted much like going through a professional firm you had to be appointed a partner you had to be selected after you ran through a trial period of time you you started out working in the store and then of course you he, he gave you one to run and if you proved yourself then he would he would let you buy into the partnership but here was the ad that he ran uh to attract potential partners and it said this men wanted well-established mercantile concern operating 312 retail stores offers and there's four points number one Long and continuous hours of work. Number two, the work itself, hard, ceaseless, trying, testing. Three, the work drive unrelenting, day in and day out. Four, and for it, a small living salary, perhaps less than you are getting now. <laughs> and he, Well, that's attractive. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that a great one ad? <laughs> Put that on LinkedIn, folks. <laughs> <laughs> that but, is fantastic. That's up there with, with the, uh, the 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 guy, the the Arctic Explorer, right? Um, like whose yes. name escapes me right now. But safe return, doubtful. Right, right. Yep. And and how many people responded to that? It was overwhelming. Oh, crazy number. Yeah. The the this whole safe return, doubtful, and I'll and I'll think of the name and blurt it out while you're talking later. But the, the he he was doing do it was Antarctic exploration. And we put this ad that, like, you know, you're probably going to die, you know, and that was a safe return doubtful was really the, the head of the ad. And he had, you know, 5,000 people, the same thing, show up the first day to try to get the ad. So very similar. But but you know what works on this and why, where I think that we can learn from um, b- both of these is that they are authentic. Absolutely. The, I think that's one thing that runs through this whole series of, of these entrepreneurs is these guys had a why. They had a purpose mm-hmm. and, and they communicated it and they lived it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, and yep, clearly. Yep. And, and you know, in that, in, in, in the year that this ran, Ed, apparently, I think this was 1918, although I couldn't verify the actual year of this ad. I know it was past the 1907 when you had 100 and whatever stores, but um, they're 1917. Uh, so it might have been in the 20s sometime, but it, it, he personally interviewed 5,000 people. He would personally interview them, and he only hired 100 <laughs> out of the 5,000, wow. uh, which, which I found really interesting because he was looking for personal characteristics. You know, he had all these theories about beady eyes and thin, pursed lips, and, you know, he wanted people that were going to work hard and that had upstanding morals and that didn't drink, smoke, or gamble and, and all of that. But he really did view his organization as the process of man-building. He said, we consider ourselves first as a man-building organization and secondly as a merchandising organization. Wow. Uh, picture somebody coming, coming out like that and saying that you know, this, is, this is what we're doing today. 
Yeah, no, it'd be. <laughs> and, and the other thing that I found really interesting as he grew all these stores, he realized that he wanted to centralize the financing and the bookkeeping. So even if you were one of these one third owners and you had your own store, you sent all the cash receipts every day to headquarters and they took care of all that. He said it was much easier to teach a man merchandising than it was to teach them financing <laughs> and, and bookkeeping, which I have to say, you know, made a lot of sense. He said, look, there's no, there's no reason for these stores to have cash. We have it because we do the central purchasing, gives us greater purchasing power, lowers our prices. Mm-hmm. We control the inventory, all of that. And, and so he was kind of in his way a precursor to what Walton did on, on obviously a much, much bigger scale. But then, of course, oddly enough, come to find out that he trained Sam Walton. Really? Yeah. Sam oh, Walton. that's right. We did. We were t- doing the profile of Walton. That's right. He did work at a penny store. That's he correct. He did work in the pennies. Yep. Yeah. And, he, and he knew James Cash, obviously. So I thought that was, uh, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, who who didn't die until the seven nineteen seventies? Yeah, and he was. Uh, I, I believe he was. He was. He remained chairman of the board until nineteen forty six, and he was honorary chairman after that until his death in nineteen seventy one. And they said he continued up to his death to go into the office. Good for him. <laughs> so like so like Rabbi Daniel Lappin says, you know, don't retire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wholly agree with that. I wholly agree with that. But interesting, easy to teach people merchandising, which I guess we would call what marketing and sales today. Yes. Yes. Right. Yep. Then the then the the financial piece, and I I guess by finding this, it wasn't wasn't just the bookkeeping. It was it was all of the 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 stuff on on you know fi- financing the store from a debt leverage that kind of thing. Right. And of course, you know, he always looked for cheapest rent. He didn't want to be in the most busy parts of town because those were high rents. He really wanted to keep his costs down, try and pass that along to the consumer, which of course is what Walmart has done as well. And he, he too had that philosophy. His big thing was inventory turns. That's why he didn't want to stock things that sat around like furniture. He wanted dry goods, you know, average selling clothing sizes and shoes. He didn't carry, you know, odd size shoes because he wanted stuff to turn. His mm. big thing was inventory turnover. Uh, in the 1929 stock market crash, incidentally, he, he lost virtually all his personal wealth. And he had to actually borrow against his life insurance uh, to, to meet his company's payroll. So he, he took a hit in the stock market crash. Pretty late in the game, too. I mean, that was, that was not early on. That was, that was late in, in, in It was. In yep. yep. Yeah. It really was. So, yeah. But very, very interesting guy. I found it interesting. Apparently, it was during a visit to a store in Des Moines, Iowa, where he trained uh, – the young Sam Walton on how to wrap packages with a minimal amount of paper and ribbon. <laughs> so, so Sam's frugality uh, might have started mm-hmm. with James Cash Penny, or at least reinforced by it. <laughs> One of the things that I, I thought was really interesting is he did he did create a um, uh, a a an organization that supplemented people who were over 40 years old, managers who were over 40 years old, he called it 40 plus, which I guess is still around. Right. And he did this, did this with uh, Thomas J. Watson of IBM, right. Mm. Uh, Arthur Godfrey, the radio and TV personality and Norman Vincent Peale. 
right? Oh, interesting. And yep. yeah, yeah. It's, it be, and this was a. It was really to help unemployed managers and executives get new positions. So it was, a, I guess, it's the precursor of the LinkedIn of its day, if you will. So. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting that he he would take care of of mid level executives or try to you know create an organization that would do so um, for himself. And I wonder if that is related back to that whole stock market crash thing. Yeah, you know that's interesting. In 1921, he wrote an essay called "Why a Buyer's Market Hasn't Changed Our Plans," and in there, Ed, he says he usually selected young men to be partners because the older man is apt to have become set in his ways. <laughs> he said, huh. "But if you can find a man past 40 who is willing to change, then you know he would also accept that too." Because he said that was usually a really good thing, but he he really kind of had a bias against men past forty because he thought that they were set in their ways, and he wanted them young and in, in uh, the partner position. Yep, interesting. Hey, and by the way, I'm looping back now to the beginning of the se- segment. Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton. It finally popped into my brain. That's the, this. the the Arctic explorer. And his, right. his ad was, uh, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, <laughs> safe Sign return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ed, this has been great. This is flying by, folks. When we come back, we're going to do the Wright Brothers. But in the meantime, we'd like to remind you that you can email Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Please check out our website, thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes on each one of these entrepreneurs that we talk about today. You can listen to prior shows there as well, too, and and leave us a comment. And now we want to hear from our friends at Azamba. making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here doing Entrepreneur Heaven, and we've already taken a look at George Eastman from the Kodak Company and James Cash Penny from J.C. Penney's. Now we want to dive into, Ed, one of my favorite, the Wright Brothers. Oh, in- incredible, incredibly ge- geniuses who never graduated high school. Never graduated high school. They had a sister uh, who, who uh, was the only college graduate in the family. But, uh, yep, they only had a few years of high school at most, I think. And, um, you know, I just read a few months ago The Wright Brothers by David McCulloch the historian. And uh, I can't recommend this book highly enough, folks. If you want just a great read, I mean, I'd say a beach read, but uh, we're coming out of summer. Uh, But if you just want to curl up in your easy chair with a nice drink and read what I think is just an incredibly inspiring story. Uh, And and David McCulloch, as you know, is such a great writer. Oh, fantastic. He's just done such a great job. And it's a, it's a, it's a breezy book. It moves it's very fast paced, not going to take you long. And it's just, I found it to be incredibly inspiring. And in fact, a lot of uh, what I have on these guys is, came, came out of that book. Yeah. I read uh, the John Adams book by him in 1776. You know, the weird thing about reading a McCullough book is because he does, he does so many of the, you know, the voiceovers for the, for the, the Ken, the Burns films, right? Yes. That when I, when I read it, you actually read it in McCullough's voice. Do you, do you find yourself doing that? Yes. You can hear his voice come through. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to so many interviews with him and, and, uh, I, I loved his book on Truman, and and yeah, the John Adams book was great, and the 1776 book. Wow, what a what a great book that was! Yes, but well, this this Wright brothers one I really liked because it all started Ed, when their father Bishop Melton Wright brought home a little toy helicopter from a trip he took, <laughs> and the two boys were just absolutely fascinated with this thing, and that's kind of where you can you can kind of pinpoint where it all started. Yeah, incredible. It's, it's, you know, some of these stories that you can point a specific time and, and place for, for the beginnings of the ideas, and, and that was certainly it for them. Uh, and you know, bro- brothers separated by what about four years I- in age had older brothers, and as you said, the, si- the sister and the sister is the only one who graduated from college, right? Right. Um, yeah. And and also both Wilbur and Orville, of course, uh, Wilbur. Uh, died tragically at 45, but uh, Orville lived to be 76. Neither, neither ever married. Um, and <laughs> that my, my favorite, my Orville did say at one point, though, a man cannot have both a wife and an airplane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, you know, the interesting thing about Orville living in, uh, he passed away, I think in, uh, what was it? Uh, January 30th, 1948. Yeah. Uh, he he lived to see, you know, kind of the the dev- devastation of World War II and the bombing, and the, you know, and all of that. He he kind of lived to see that, and mm-hmm. it was kind of interesting. Yes, yeah, and just uh, the, the the strides that these guys made in the discovery of powered man flight is it really. Uh, an incredible story you know here here's these guys you know dayton ohio they write away to the smithsonian institution or or some federal agency to to find out you know where where are the most steady wind patterns you know and they find out it's kitty hawk north carolina because they knew they needed to to take take off into the wind and so so they they went and and moved all of their stuff there you know not a huge trek and these guys were not making boatloads of cash in the bicycle shop that they were running, right? There was, you know, there, were, there was not a whole heck of a lot of money there. 
Well, it was some. I mean, they they opened their bike store in Dayton in 1893, and it did earn them about two to three grand a year, which you know, it's, it's I don't know, it's like fifty five grand a day now. It's really hard to compare. But yeah. but what is interesting is they they spent about a thousand dollars on on um, you know to get them to Kitty Hawk and to get to that inaugural flight in December. Um, so they, they did pour a lot of what they earned in, into this venture. And, and you're right, he, he did write, Wilbur actually wrote to the uh, U.S. Weather Bureau in Washington, D.C., asking about wind okay, patterns around, yep. yeah, around the country, and that's how, that's how they came up to Kitty Hawk. I, I didn't realize that. I, I always wondered, why Kitty Hawk? You know, I did, well, that's the Weather Bureau gave them. They said there's some great winds out there, and, and uh, sure enough, it was. But before that, Ed, Wilbur actually sat down and um, McCulloch's got a picture of this letter that he wrote to the Smithsonian, and it was on the you know the Wright brothers bicycle shop stationery, and he asked the Smithsonian, "We I'm going to undertake this study of of powered human flight, and I'm going to you know uh, do everything I can to bring it to fruition. Please send me everything you have on it, books, papers, everything." <laughs> and uh, it's a great letter, and you just you read it now, and you you think, "Wow." These guys were just totally focused and committed. Yes, and they're one of my favorite stories. It's it's really an anti-story. The story never occurred, but I often tell it. And it's when I'm trying to explain the difference in, in some other work that we've talked about earlier, the Peter Block how versus what matters. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the pe people ask, well, you know, how have other people done this successfully? And the question really needs to become, well, what is it that we want to create, right? Because if you're if you're asking how have other people done it successfully, you could you could end up with this conversation. This is my imagined conversation between Wilbur and Orville on their way from from Dayton, Ohio to Kitty Hawk, right? So, Wilbur, um, you know, what do you think of this powered man flight? How have other people done this successfully? Uh, well, uh, well, Orville, I've been, been been thinking about that, and I did some research at the Dayton Library, and you know there was like this Greek guy, Icarus Daedalus. That didn't work out so well. He ended up crashing and burning because he got too close to the sun with the wax and the wings. And then, of course, you know we have Leonardo da Vinci, the greatest human mind ever. That just he came up with no less than four different flying machines. The only one that actually gets off the ground though is this thing called the helicopter, and it really doesn't fly. It sort of jumps, and it it, it just jumps to the point. Where it, where it completely crashes and demolishes itself with about six or seven jumps. So that didn't work out. Oh, yeah, you're right. The hell with it, Wilbur. Let's just go back to the bicycle shop. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. And, and you know, and this is made famous probably from Simon Sinek's talk, but Samuel Pierpont Langley, uh, who, who invented the pilotless air, aerodome, which was launched from a houseboat, by the way, in 1896 in the Potomac, and it flew for about a half a mile before it crashed. Mm -hmm. and, and there was a big scandal. And later on, uh, after, I believe it was after the first brother died, uh, the Smithsonian actually tagged Langley as the inventor of powered, uh, powered human flight. And boy, mm -hmm. did that Boy, did that really upset them. Yes, uh, it did. Man, <laughs> they had a feud uh, for years, right, with the Smithsonian. Yes, yes. big feud. They were involved in lots of patent lawsuits, and, and they won every one, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, which was really interesting. But 
it was it was really funny and on the the famous flight the december 17th 1903 i didn't realize it but they actually flipped a coin to see who was going to fly first that day <laughs> and wilbur won but you know both of them flew that day so right. there were actually four flights uh, mm-hmm. of, of various lengths and, and distance, and, and uh, McCulloch's even got a copy of the telegram they sent home uh, reporting to the father, you know, success today, because nobody was around to see it. There were nope. no reporters. There, you know, we didn't learn about it until way later. And, of course, they couldn't get the, the United States government interested in their flyer. You know, after they did the Kitty Hawk flight, they went back home, and they started flying in this local field in Dayton, and the owner of that field thought that they were nuts, even though he let them do it. (laughs) So I think these two guys are just a pair of nuts, but but they couldn't get the U.S. government interested. The government wanted all these, they wanted plans, they wanted demonstrations, you had to prove everything would work, blah, 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 and they got frustrated and they went over to France Mm -hmm. and, and started chopping their plane in Europe, and France was the first to bite. And said, you know, we'll pay you one million francs for one of your flyers if you come over and do some demo flights, mm-hmm. which, of course, um, you know, I think it was Wilbur who went over there and, and did that. And he, he became a star. Mm-hmm. Interesting, because they were not – we mentioned they didn't even go to college, but they, they, they didn't even do a lot of math, right? They didn't go like calculations and crap. It was trial and error, j- just trying to make it work. And in the end, you know, their their technology for the way that the wings worked, I believe, ended up being substandard, right? I forget who came after them. Yeah, right? they're Curtis, uh, Kurt, uh, some Curtis, company, yeah, Curtis, somebody um, who who they have actually had patent suits with, kind of came up with the aileron and and some other things. But yeah, they, they it was improved upon for sure. But they they actually did add study and and the stuff that it got from the Smithsonian, you know, guys like Langley and a whole bunch of others were working on this. And they did have calculations and charts and statistics and all this stuff. And the Wright brothers said they're completely worthless because after they conducted (laughs) so many experiments, they said, this is worthless. These guys are just they're just making it up because they were out there actually trying to fly and, you know. What they said later, and I just love this line, because how how well does this tie into the theme of our show and even what George Gilder was saying? He said, but the best dividends on the labor invested have invariably come from seeking more knowledge rather than more power. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, Did did you say, Ron, that government agencies were faking their data? Is that what you said? Uh, <laughs> not, not I can't so believe government it. agencies, but the people funded by the government. Oh well, like whatever. Langley and 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 because some the government others. probably wanted the numbers, like <laughs> earn value and project management. Holy cow! <laughs> Early versions of that. All right. Well, we, I, I can't believe Ron. We're already up against our last segment here, and we are. But we want to hear from my. Uh, employer sage but we are, do have coming up one more uh and we're going to talk about anita roddick the founder of the body shop but first let's hear from sage follow us on twitter at voice america trn get the lowdown on guests new shows and your favorites that's voice america trn Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. 
Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise born on october 23rd 1942 uh, anita roderick the founder of the body shop was a fairly intriguing personality she not only wanted to 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 uh, make women feel beautiful, so following on the footsteps of some of the other folks that we we've, we've profiled previously, uh, but a huge impact in the area of what she called ethical consumerism. Uh, you know, first uh, organization that was known to prohibit ingredients tested on animals, although there's some question about that, so we'll probably take that on. And also the idea of fair trade with uh, with third world. Countries and uh, you know, Ron and I have have done a lot of talking about corporate social responsibility. And one of the things that I think is most important to take away from uh, this, and I think Anita Rodica is a great example of this, Ron, is that you know, if this is part of the founding principles of your organization, then I've really got no problem with it at all, right? Because th- th- you're, you're saying, hey, this is what we're about. We're, we, yes, we, we seek, seek to make a profit, but we're going to do it with these constraints that we have put on ourselves. And I've got no problem with that at all. What I, what I do begin to have an issue with is the enforced corporate, corporate social responsibility from the outside that says, okay, wait a minute here. You know, you've had a, a business for 30, 40 years and shareholders have, have bought your stock and then all of a sudden you're saying, okay, well, we're going green because it's the it's the marketing thing to do. So I think Anita Roderick is a great example of hey listen, when it starts from the beginning with the founding principles, you can actually make this work and and it works really well. I agree. I mean, you can see that with uh Whole Foods, right? Mm-hmm. And uh who is it uh, Mackey? Yep, John Mackey. John Mackey and uh does doesn't target isn't that part of their thing as well. They also donate a certain percent of after-tax profits to charity. It's part of Google their, do no evil. Google uh even Google's um IPO letter which I think is one of the most profound documents ever written by the two Google founders, basically said, look, we're going to make incredibly risky investments that are not going to pay off for decades. (laughs) And if that (laughs) freaks you out, don't buy our stock. 
and, uh-huh. and they and they say this repeatedly throughout this IPO letter. And you know, if you look at some of the stuff they're doing, right, the driverless car and all mm-hmm. their other Google X projects, they're they're living by that code. So I, I agree. And I I learned of Anita actually from our mutual acquaintance, Veris Age Institute colleague Paul Dunn. Mm-hmm. He told me to read her book, um, Body and Soul. Which I did. Now, uh, politically, I don't agree with much Anita Roddick stood for, but I've always admired her a- as a business person and, a- and as an entrepreneur because she did have a purpose. She did have a code of, of morals and she had very strong beliefs and she lived them. She actually thought that business and political advocacy could be merged and she did both. And you know what? I kind of admire that. I mean, I don't think there's enough of that in corporate America. I think too much of corporate America has gone milk toast and a little mm-hmm. bit too PC. She stood up. Now, yeah, she got bashed on you know certain sides of the street for that, but so what? Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, don't buy her product. And she was okay with that. She was absolutely. And so I've I've always admired that about her. So I I, I think this is really quite a story. Now. What's interesting is there's some controversy mm-hmm. <laughs> surrounding her. Um, one thing, and, and I, I can't say I understand this completely, and or nor am I an authority on it, but this idea of no animal testing when it comes to cosmetics, from what I understand, talking to people in that industry, anything that hits the skin <laughs> has been tested on animals, mm-hmm. period. I don't care what it is. Otherwise, it doesn't get through. Well, and and that goes to the whole FDA approval, right? And I don't, I, I, I don't know whether the the FDA doesn't, uh, well, you know, only allows for certain products to make it on the market when you do certain tests. So the company themselves, they might not test right. it on animals. But certainly, if it's got to get approval from some organization, some governmental body, it's very likely that it was. But the company can absolve themselves and say, "Hey, listen, we—it's not we didn't, we didn't sanction it. it, right? We didn't sanction. Right. It. We didn't do it." But right. you know, that's kind of that's that's kind of shallow and hollow. The way it was explained to me is the people that she's buying it from definitely had it tested on animals, even maybe if the supplier company didn't test it on animals, somebody did. Right. I mean, there's a whole chain here. <laughs> and eventually, right. if it's going on the human skin, it's being tested on animals, folks. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. Yeah. And the other controversy I think she was involved with is that, that she basically, you know, over from the UK and was in your neck of the woods, Ron, San Francisco. Right where there was there was stores called the Body Shop in the early seventies, and you know she <laughs> at one point just took the brochures word for word, uh, even took the name and and went over to to uh, back to the UK and, and started the organization there. And I guess at a certain point they they came back and fi- figured out a, a deal, right, where they would would uh, she would she would buy out the name to bot Body Shop from the original owners and there was a confidentiality agreement, etc. Um but uh, interestingly enough, I guess it's called the, the, the or is now called Body Time. Are they still around, Ron? I, you still? know, I don't. I I knew I wanted to look them up, but I'm not sure. I'm not okay. sure if they're still around. But you're right; they did reach an agreement, and uh, everything was all all cleared up. But it does look like she stole their name and their marketing brochure almost word for word. 
<laughs> well, you know, it, it's the, the marketing brochure. I have more of a problem with the, the name body shop is that's that, that doesn't appear too much too uh, innovative per se, but still, yeah, not, right. not, not the best part of the story, but we, again, we will say this. I think she did some incredible things for all of the charitable organizations, uh, including the, the, the children on the edge organization that she founded to help disadvantaged children in, in Eastern Europe and Asia. Great work there. Totally true. And, and Ed, she wrote an essay in 1998 that I really like called Four Letter Words. And she says, love, give, care, feel, hope, <clears throat> fair, soul. How, how interesting is that? Mm. And true are all found in my work, which it was her all-time favorite word. <laughs> work. <laughs> and she said, we can bring our heart to work. She said, for me, the workplace is an incubator for the human spirit. And uh, she said, you know, you can't, uh, you can't manage enthusiasm and it cannot be taught. And she kept a sign above her office door, Department of the Future. Love that. She, she, I, I do too. She was always interested in her employees' feedback. She, anywhere she went, any store she visited, she got right in and got right up to them and just surprised them. And, and you know, being the CEO and being kind of famous at that point, she, she, she said I would get the spontaneous feedback of what was really happening in the organization. And she got a lot of ideas out of that. And she, she of course, gave everybody half a day a month to work on community services. But And, and of course, the uh, what the queen uh, – Gave her the former title of Dame, right? right. Um, so she is known as Dame uh, <laughs> Roddick. But w- one of my favorite all-time quotes from her, Ed, and I, I used to use this all the time. She said, mm-hmm. if you think you're too small to have an impact, try going to bed with a mosquito. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> wow. Well, we are near the end of the show already, Ron. Awesome. Well, that was great fun. Yep. Well, we will be back next week, and I guess I will see you in 167 hours. Excellent. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes up there today on the four entrepreneurs that we profiled. And in the meantime, you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. Keep those iTunes reviews coming in, folks. And thank you for listening and have a great weekend. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.